Well, uh, this is our second study in a four-part series on the manifest presence of God. Or you might say a study on Christmas presence. That's presence with a C-E. We began our study by considering that Christmas is really about God's manifest presence. And so we're seeking to trace the theme from creation. We started in the Garden of Eden, working our way forward to the incarnation of our Lord. And last week we began, you'll remember in Genesis 3, with Adam and Eve, and how God graciously manifests himself to them even after their sin. And we worked our way forward all the way to Exodus 3. That's where we left off with God's appearance to Moses at the burning bush. And we see how God, through the Old Testament, continually manifests himself to undeserving sinners in various ways. That's our God. He desires to manifest himself. Well, this week, we're continuing our journey through the scriptures by studying how it is that God has granted access into his manifest presence. So as we approach our Lord, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we want to acknowledge you, the author of this book, the Bible. We thank you so much for giving us your holy word. And we ask, as our Holy Father, that you would be merciful to us, that you would speak to us again, that you would impart to us some dear truth that would change our lives. I know that I am not capable or worthy as your servant to bring your truth, but by your grace, by the blood of Jesus, I do pray that you would use me, that every listener here would hear your words. Would you give them ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth? And we pray if there be anybody in our midst who has never entered into a saving relationship with you through your son. We pray that you would touch their heart, that you would work on them in such a way through this truth, that you would draw them to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. According to several sources, Vladimir Putin is the most heavily guarded person in the world. It's not hard to imagine why. He's a man with many enemies. And... Really, just given the amount of spending on his own security detail, it ironically would seem that he's not a very secure person, at least he's somewhat insecure. But if you were visiting Russia and you decided, let's just say for whatever reason, okay, hypothetically, you wanted to have an audience with Vladimir Putin, you wanted to come into his presence and you wanted to talk to him, well, your chances of actually having access to this man would be extremely slim. With thousands of security personnel, armored vehicles, advanced surveillance systems, you're probably not going to get even close to Vladimir Putin. Not without some kind of special security clearance. And this is nothing new in our world. Important people, important leaders, even religious leaders in many cases, but it's certainly important politicians like kings, have always been protected. It's always been difficult or limited to have access into their presence. You can always tell when our president is visiting the city because there will be entire streets, even blocks, city blocks, just closed off. And of course, there will be this long motorcade of black SUVs full of all these special secret service agents. Wherever the president goes, access to him will necessarily be limited. That's part of being a VIP, right? Well, God 
is far more important than any president or dictator. I don't think I have to tell you that. But if we can't waltz, we can't just waltz into the presence of some important president, then certainly, very much less, can we expect to walk lightly into the presence of our God. Last week I mentioned how that humanity's unlimited access into God's manifest presence was severed. It was severed with the first sin that human beings committed. Their first act of rebellion against God cut off this unbroken access between God and man. And so at the end of Genesis chapter 3, we read in Genesis 3.24 that God drove man out of his presence in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.24, so he drove man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, God certainly didn't need a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard access into the garden, to guard access into his presence, as it were. But this would be a powerful object lesson, not only for Adam and Eve, but for all their progeny to follow after them. What was the object lesson? We no longer have access to God. There is now access, sure, but only limited. And that is what we will see going forward. The way to God is blocked. Here and there throughout the Old Testament, we not only see that God delights, though, to manifest himself to sinful humanity, but God has even made a way. A way for man to come back into his presence once again. And this is the point of today's study, then. It's that our holy God provides sinners access into his presence. He's a holy God. He's set apart from sin, and yet he mercifully, graciously provides sinners like us access into his manifest presence. And that's what Christmas is all about. God's provision of a sure and permanent way of access into his presence. So in today's study, I want to show you three remarkable cases, case studies, we might say, in the Bible, where we see our holy God grants limited access into his presence. They're all very remarkable. First, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus, the second book in the Bible, chapter 19. And I want you to see God provided access into his presence at Mount Sinai. It was a limited access, but it was access. Well, God's Spirit is everywhere present at the same time. We mentioned that last week. He is omnipresent. We read that He does at times and in special ways and special places to certain people. He manifests His presence. And He does so here at Sinai in a most extraordinary way. And this meeting was not random. Don't get that idea. If you're reading the context, you see it's very purposeful. God is a God of order. He never acts without good purpose. So God's not just randomly showing up here. Okay? God doesn't do that. God has just redeemed these hundreds of thousands of Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And he's parted the waters for them. They cross over on dry ground. And then God collapses the waters upon their pursuing enemies. And he's already rained down upon the Israelites bread from heaven, sufficient enough to feed them all and leftovers. And he has opened streams in the desert. And now in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, God declares that he intends to make this people that he has redeemed out of Egypt his own. And he 
is going to be their God. They are going to be his people. He is going to be their God. That's the proposition. That is the purpose for which God has redeemed them, that they might be a people for his possession. Because, by the way, redemption always comes with a purpose. If God has redeemed you, it's for a purpose not to live for yourself, but to serve him. Well, Moses relays this message to Israel in verse 7 and in verse 8. Exodus 19, verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord tells Moses then that the people are to prepare themselves because he intends on the third day to manifest himself to them. So look down at Exodus 19, verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, of course, all these details are incidental as far as the manifestation of God's presence. God didn't need thunder. He didn't need lightning. He's not like Thor or Zeus or any of these, these gods of the gaps, as it were. But God uses these things, visual and audible, to manifest to his people that he is remarkably manifesting himself. And God's people then come to the foot of Mount Sinai. Can you just imagine? And they come to meet God. So, Israel, meet God. God, meet Israel. But it's a very serious meeting. This is extremely intense. There's something terrifying about God's manifest presence. Look at verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended up upon it with fire. And its smoke ascended up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. It appears that in manifesting his presence to Israel at Sinai here in Exodus 19, God isn't messing around. God does not want his people to come away with this first impression that they can take his presence lightly. And so he shows up with power. This is shock and awe. This is God displaying his mighty power as the almighty. Years ago in my Shall I say, in my less mature days, I remember I was staying with some friends in Michigan, and you know, this was like farm country, these were all farm guys, and one night they were showing me their weapons. As a city kid, I was quite intrigued. But you know, we checked the chamber, and this weapon was unloaded, unloaded, this unloaded pistol and everything, and so they gave it to me, which probably wasn't a good idea. So I took this thing, you know, I started waving it around, going gangster on them and everything, and immediately it was it was immediately, all these guys in that room, these are grown guys, big farm guys, they just like freaked out. You know, I'm like, we just checked this thing. There's nothing in it. But that, it was like I broke a sacred code because all the guys there who grew up with weapons had a far more mature and far more healthy respect for this weapon. They had a healthy fear because of the danger associated there. And here, God at Sinai wants his people to begin their relationship with a healthy fear. As it is written, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord. There's something that should absolutely terrify us about God's 
manifest presence. I know that's not popular, but that is certainly biblical. And what is it about God's presence that is so terrifying? It's that God is completely holy, and we are not. God is completely set apart from sin, and we are not. We are sinful. And yet we see the Lord mercifully grants His people access into His presence. He does so by limiting that access to Moses, a representative. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So God calls Moses to venture up into the storm, beyond the veil of the smoke, into his presence. This is not because Moses was himself a holy man. You know if you read the Bible that Moses was a sinner, just like the rest of us. The Bible records some of his sin at times. Moses isn't granted access because of his own merit, but because of the mercy of God. We also see here this idea of a representative, a mediator, where Moses enters into the presence of God on behalf of God's people, for the people. This is a theme moving forward throughout the Bible. As sinners, we need someone to enter into God's presence for us, a priest, a mediator, someone who will mediate between us and God on our behalf. And no wonder God said that he would one day send to us a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18. God explains he would send a prophet uh, like Moses with whom he would speak face to face. And that prophet, if you know the rest of your Bible, was Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet and priest and king. While mercifully granting Moses access then into his presence, the Lord, we notice, at the same time severely limits access. Because look at verse 21. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people so that they do not break through the, to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Notice the consequences for approaching into God's presence uninvited. It was instant death. The priests who enter into God's manifest presence, we're told in verse 22, they were to first consecrate themselves. That means they were to first set apart themselves from sin to the Lord. You must enter into God's presence on His terms because He is God. At Sinai we learn that just as we cannot see or discover God's presence without His self-revelation, even so we cannot actually enter into God's holy presence without his invitation. We need God's approval. We can only approach him on his terms. Now please turn over a few chapters to Exodus 25. And I want to show you a second remarkable case study from the word of God. And I want you to see in the second case study that God provided access for sinners into his presence in the tabernacle. God provided access into his presence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is also referred to in Scripture as the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Why is it called the tent of meeting? Because it was there in this tent that man would meet with God. God would meet with humankind once again. God told Moses, Exodus 25, look at verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture 
just so shall you construct it. There's a full-scale replica, a model of the tabernacle. The courtyard measured 100 by 75 feet, and the tent itself measured 45 by 15 feet. Now, that's not very big. That's not a very big tent at all when you consider what it represents, that God is here said to dwell among his people. And the detailed instructions that God would give his people here at Sinai in building this tabernacle, these instructions are not incidental. They are extremely intentional because they provided, God says to us in Exodus 25, a pattern, a pattern of spiritual truths concerning God's redemption of sinners and the way that sinners can have access into God's holy presence. Most basic was the fact that the tabernacle was to be placed at the center of Israel's camp. God said he wanted the camp to be pitched, and then the three tribes were to three tribes were to pitch east of the tent, three to the west, three north, three south, so that the tent of the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, would always be in the center of Israel's camp, so that God could be said to dwell in their midst. And surely the tabernacle's centrality in the camp is suggestive that God's manifest presence ought to be central to your life. Not just a Sunday morning exercise or something that happens when you get up in the morning and you call it your devotional time. No, meeting with God is to be central to your life. God wanted Israel to realize that. At any rate, we see here in the tabernacle's centrality, God again clearly desires to dwell among his people, even in their midst. And Christ's apostles would later understand that the tabernacle itself was a prophetic picture. A picture of what, we say? A picture of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the, the Greek there literally says that Jesus tabernacled among us when he came. God tabernacled with men. He pitched his tent with men in Jesus Christ. When Christ came, he was himself the tent of meeting where we meet God. Another thing to note is that the tabernacle was a portable tent. It was designed to move with the camp of Israel. And of course, this represented the fact that God was moving with his people wherever they went. Exodus 40 verse 38 says, throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. God was visibly manifesting his presence to his people night and day. And it's also instructive that there was only one way in to the tabernacle. There was one gate, one gate on the east side of the courtyard. And and many believe that this is because God originally drove Adam and Eve east out of the Garden of Eden. The ancient Jews believed that God drove Adam and Eve east of Eden. And so in their ancient traditions, when God commanded his people to enter westward into the tabernacle and approach him in the holy place in a westward direction, that was because this was symbolizing man's re-entrance. Man retracing his steps back into the presence of God. Paradise lost, Genesis 3, now we see paradise regained. Of course, nothing here is permanent, but there's a pattern. Follow the pattern. You've got to stick with me. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but the payoff is important. 
Many people don't want to study this part of the Bible. It's not interesting to them. But I'll tell you, there's a reason it's there. God tells you there's a reason. One thing we note is that there is one tabernacle and there's only one gate. The tabernacle is the only means by which the Old Testament people of God at this time could retrace their steps back into his presence. One tabernacle for all 12 tribes. Not one for each. And not one tabernacle for the Levites and another for the common people. One way to God for all of them. And one gate. One gate that led to the inner court. There was only one door that led to the holy place. There was no back door, no way over the the wall of the outer court. And the pattern here is instructed because God would later reveal in the New Testament when he sends his son that Jesus is our only hope of entering into God's presence. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5. Jesus is the only way that actually brings us into God's presence, John 14.6. Jesus is the only name that brings salvation, Acts 4.12. And Jesus himself would say in John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now, there were also many unique items that God had his people create so as to furnish the tabernacle. And I have a diagram up there. We'll kind of walk through this together. But you know how it is. When you walk into an art museum, if you're into art, maybe you're not. But when you walk into an art museum, all the paintings, the sketches, the sculptures, whatever the representation of art, every work of art, whatever its subject in form, is also said to have content. That is, it communicates something to the viewer, whether or not you realize Well, these items that furnish the temple or or the tabernacle, they are works of art. They are God's works of art. And they were to communicate how we as sinners enter into God's manifest presence. This is very fascinating. And we're just going to have to work through this quickly, but hang with me here. And then you can listen to the recording if you want. The first piece of furniture that God told his people to create, you can read about it in Exodus 27, 1 through 8 was the bronze altar. The first thing that you would encounter upon entering through the east gate into the tabernacle in a westward direction was this bronze altar. The bronze altar represented the need for atonement. Why is that? Because it was here on this bronze altar that countless sacrifices would be offered on behalf of Israel's sin. The sacrifice was slain. Its blood was spilled on the altar and then it was consumed in fire on the altar. And this was all instructive. This happened for hundreds of years in Israel's history. Why? Because God just loves to see animals killed. What was the point of it? It was a pattern. It's instructive that a sinner's access into God's presence began or depended upon an atonement. It's instructive that entrance into God's presence begins with the altar because it's showing us you can't come to God first without an atonement. You need an atonement. And God gave specific qualifications for the kind of atonement, the kind of sacrifice that would be acceptable versus unacceptable. Not just any sacrifice would do. You see, because the wages of sin is death, the Bible teaches that. God said that to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. The day you sin, you will die. The wages of sin is death. And because of that, sinners living at this time could only approach God by the death of a sacrificial animal. The animal was innocent. The animal had nothing to do with their sin, and that's exactly the point. The just, the innocent, was dying for the unjust, the guilty. And it was a picture 
It was a pattern. In order to enter into God's presence, our sins must be atoned for. And while offering a blood atonement on this altar didn't actually and finally cover anyone's sins, yet it was an expression of faith where God's people were believing God will himself provide a lamb. God will provide a lamb. They believed that. And that lamb who takes away the sin of the world would be Jesus Christ. Well, the second piece of furniture that you would encounter in the courtyard of the tabernacle there would be the bronze laver. It was located between the bronze altar and the actual tent of meeting. Exodus chapter 30, verse 17 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. And concerning the priests, God says in verse 21, They shall wash their hands and feet. Now get this. They shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. Get the picture? God's saying, Oh yeah, you wash up when you come into my presence. Otherwise... It's curtains, <laughs> no pun intended. I mean, you're, it, it's over. The washing mattered to God, and it mattered so much that if they violated this protocol, they would be instantly killed. Why is that? The priests were to wash their hands and their feet with water from this laver to represent how we can only enter into God's presence cleansed, made holy, washed from our iniquities, our transgressions. As Psalm 24, 3, 4 says... Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. How can that happen? How could that be said of us? Thank God, 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Glory to God. There is a washing there in Jesus Christ that we need. And it's the only way forward into the holy place. Both located in the tabernacle courtyard, we have the bronze altar and the bronze laver, and they represented not two different steps into the presence of God, but the only approach we must take to God, one and the same, Christ's sacrifice for our sin and cleansing of our sin. Do you see that? Christ's sacrifice for us and his cleansing of us. And that's in the outer courtyard. The rest of the items we're going to see here are located within the tent of meeting, in the holy place. We need the sacrifice of Jesus and his cleansing to enter into God's presence. But the third piece of furniture located behind the first veil in the holy place, as we enter into the tent of meeting, the first thing we'd see on our left is this golden lampstand. Exodus 25, 31, God said, Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. All the light in the tabernacle came from the single golden lampstand. There were seven lamps on it. I'm sure you've seen pictures of this. And the light would have reflected then off the, from this lampstand, off the gold paneling on the the south and north walls of the tabernacle, illuminating the holy place. Over and over again, we see Scripture emphasizing light. Light, in so many ways, as representative of holiness or illumination or the truth of God by which we see. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, says of Jesus Christ, there, there in Jesus Christ, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus himself would say, I am the light of the world. 
He is the one who gives us light in our darkness. The fourth piece of furniture located opposite the golden candlestick was the table of showbread. You can read about God's instructions for the table of showbread in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. In verse 30, God said, You shall set the bread of the presence, interesting, the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. That is, the priests were to continually keep fresh loaves of bread on this table, and this bread was called the bread of the presence. Why is that? Because the bread was to symbolize the presence of God. And God's presence is continually sustaining. So this table and bread reminded God's people that as long as they remained in his presence, they would not lack anything they truly needed. That's true of your life today. If you're in the presence of the Lord, you know what Paul said, even my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And the table of showbread, by the way, also symbolized the bread of life. The bread of life who was also consecrated to God. As Jesus once preached in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Are you craving something alive? Are you missing something? Our God, the one who created you and gave you desires, says, you know what you really need? Not more money. Not more relationships from people. It's not that those things don't have a place in our life. But what you ultimately need is the God who created you. You need a relationship with him. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will not hunger. You will never thirst. As you pass between the golden lampstand to your left and the golden uh, table of showbread to your right, you would come to the golden altar of incense. This was located just before the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies. And you can read about the altar of incense in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. It was here that God prescribed the high priest would burn sweet incense on this golden altar every day as a perpetual incense to the Lord. And this incense was said to please the Lord. It represented the prayers of his people. No wonder the scriptures command us to pray without ceasing. Well, behind the altar of incense hung the veil. The veil separating the holy place from the holiest of holies. In Exodus 26, verses 31 through 37, God gives instructions to Moses concerning the materials and the design of this veil. And this is interesting, that it was embroidered with cherubim again. It was embroidered with cherubim, those holy angels tasked with keeping the way into the presence, the manifest presence of God. Behind this veil was the holiest of all items in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Because it was here that God's manifest presence mysteriously dwelt. Now the word from the Hebrew that we translate Ark just means box or chest. The Ark was a rectangular wooden chest overlaid with gold. And in this chest were laid the law tablets representing God's covenant with his people. On top of this chest, this golden lid, this golden cover of the ark was called the mercy seat. And on this mercy seat were two cherubim of pure gold, their wings outstretched toward one another over the mercy seat as if to cover the glory of God there. You see the tabernacle, all of it from beginning to end, as God told Moses, this pattern it was giving us, it it, it was a pattern artistically showing us 
how to approach into God's presence. And I think we could say that the tabernacle was artistically patterned after the Garden of Eden. Approaching God's presence in the holiest of holies was reminiscent of passing between the cherubim who guarded the way into Eden. So entering into the tabernacle artistically represented the reversal of what humanity lost in the fall. And the tabernacle shows us, in summary, in order to approach into God's manifest presence, we need an atonement. We first need an atonement. Because God is just. He's holy. Your sin must be judged. We need an atonement for sin. That's the bronze altar. And we need a cleansing of sin. That's the bronze laver. And my friend, if you're a sinner, you need God's atonement for your sin. You can't approach into God's presence without the atonement of Jesus Christ, without the washing of his blood upon your life. But having received holiness on account of Jesus' atonement and washing, we can enter into the holy place. And thirdly, we see we receive the light of God's truth in the golden lampstand and the sustenance of his daily presence in the table of showbread. And we enjoy constant communion with him through prayer, the golden altar of incense. And we enjoy, ultimately, access beyond the veil into his very manifest presence itself. That's the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat there, representing how we find mercy and help in our time of need. As soon as the construction of the tabernacle was finished, we read this in Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There is something mysterious and marvelous in these words. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But this is clearly showing us again a connection between God's glory and his manifest presence. And I think we could say God's glory is wherever his manifest presence is. God's we could say God's manifesting his presence is a manifestation of his glory. There's certainly a connection there throughout scripture. And so we see striking parallels between Sinai and the tabernacle. God limits his access to a representative. First it's Moses coming up into Sinai. Now it's a priest. And God veils his glory because of his holiness. Not just anyone can approach into his presence. We can't come into his presence with sin. And so instead of a veil of smoke like we saw in Sinai, now it's a curtain, a veil a cloth, right? This veil that separates the holy place from the holiest of holies. And once again, God's glory fills the place of his manifest presence. So don't forget that. We're seeing some pattern here through the Old Testament. Now please turn over, finally, to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings is located after the books of 1 Samuel. 1st 2nd Samuel and before 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And this final case study, we'll see here just briefly, God provided access into his presence in the temple. God provided access into his presence in the temple. Namely, the temple Solomon built. That's what we're going to look at uh, today. There are a lot of similarities between the temple and the tabernacle. For instance, the same items that furnished the tabernacle basically furnished the temple. So we're not going to be detailed here, but the temple offers some additional insight concerning access into God's presence. For centuries, the tabernacle followed the Israelites wherever they went, but under the reign of King David, the tent of meeting was finally moved to Jerusalem. 
And the Bible tells us that David wanted to build God a temple. He wanted to build God a permanent dwelling place, a house. And God eventually permitted his son Solomon to do so, to build the structure. And so this stationary temple replaces the portable tabernacle. And I want you to see that God's manifest presence also filled the temple Solomon built. 1 Kings chapter 8. In the context here, the temple's just been completed. And here's this massive crowd of Israelites gathered from everywhere, representing all the 12 tribes. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 3 says, Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. And the writer goes on to describe how that in the temple's holiest of holies, the place where they were going to set the ark of the covenant, there were two towering cherubim that, that were sculpted here in this holy place and their wings stretched out over the place where they set the ark of the covenant. So now look at verse 10. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. What cloud? For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God has once again gloriously manifested his presence in this glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. And this time, it's in Solomon's temple. And it's so wonderful, Solomon exclaims in verse, down in verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Of course, God is a spirit. He's omnipresent. And so, not all the material universe can contain him. But here, we must recognize that God's glory, this glory cloud filling this holy space is simply a symbol. It's symbolic of this reality that God desires to dwell with his people, to manifest his presence, and God is providing a way of access to meet with him. God wants to meet with you, as sinful as you are. And while we don't have time right now to examine all of Solomon's prayer, it's clear he understood there was a covenantal significance to this whole deal, this whole meeting. For over 400 years, moving forward now after the construction of the temple, the high priest would enter into Solomon's temple, into the holiest of holies, and there on the Day of Atonement would make an atonement, offer an atonement on behalf of Israel's sins, on behalf of the sins of God's people, the sins of the nation. But about 400 years after the temple's construction, this all came to an end. Because this arrangement of accessing God's presence in this temple, Solomon's temple, was only a temporary arrangement. And it was based on a conditional covenant. Please turn, finally, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel is after Psalms and Proverbs. You'll come into the prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. If you get to Daniel, you're too far. Ezekiel chapter 10. So long as Israel remained faithful to God, they could count on there being a temple to visit the presence of God. But because of the nation's persistent sin, God one day withdrew his presence tragically 
from Israel's temple. Sure, God had withdrawn his presence from other persons at other times in Israel's history. We can read about that. But here, this is something most decisive. This is something more severe than any of the previous judgments. And you know that part in uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol where Scrooge is given a series of visions, past, present, future, right? It's kind of like reminds me here of what's happening in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, this prophet Ezekiel is given a series of visions that reveals what's happening. The first that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 8 is actually something that's happening in the present. And God brings Ezekiel in and uncovers for him what is happening right now in the nation of Judah, and he sees the wickedness of the land. And he sees how deep it goes and how thorough it is, how pervasive, and that it's, it's not just these politicians, but it's the religious leaders. Everybody's in cahoots. Everybody is, they're committing these abominations before God, and even though they don't see God, God sees them. You know that, brother and sister. You don't see God, but he sees you wherever you are, whatever you're doing. God sees, God knows, and he shows Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel 9, Ezekiel watches God's angels putting this mark upon all who are genuinely repentant so as to spare them from a coming judgment. Because God is going to say there's, there's a judgment to come. And then God shows Ezekiel what he's going to do. In, in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this bright figure with wheels, as it were the chariot of God. And this chariot hovers over the temple. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, we'll just read, start reading in verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Now, I know I'm just, we're just kind of jumping in and out here, but if you read chapters 8 through 11, you'll notice God's glory departs from Israel in stages. In chapter 8, even we see the, the glory of the Lord, 8 through 10, we see the glory of the Lord, His manifest presence, departing from the holiest of holies to the threshold of the temple, and then from the threshold of the temple out to the east gate of the temple. But then if you read chapter 11, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord, His manifest presence departing from Jerusalem itself, and then hovering for a time over some nearby mountains. How peculiar but very descriptive here. Why? Why these stages? Why the delay? If God's presence, if his glory is going to leave, why doesn't he just up and leave? Well, I believe God is showing us his great reluctance to withdraw his presence from his people that he loves so dearly. And nevertheless, here is a visible manifestation of the fact that God's presence did depart. Departed from this very house where he dwelt. And I share that because it's plain that as wonderful as the provision of the temple was for access into God's manifest presence, it was ultimately inadequate. And the New Testament teaches that these things, the tabernacle, the temple, all of this, was merely God's artistry, symbolizing God's more ultimate reality for us. Or as Paul says, they were mere shadows. These things were mere shadows of which Christ himself is the reality. You know, we've seen from these 
three cases, these three, three famous case studies in the Bible that our holy God provides sinners access once again into his presence. In all three of these cases, whether at Sinai, in the tabernacle, or in the temple, wherever God is manifesting his presence to sinners, we see two things in this limited access that he grants. First, there is a veil, some kind of a separation, some wall of separation between us and God on account of our sin. And the other thing we see in the pattern is that God is graciously providing a way of access through that veil, a way through, despite our sin, once again into his presence. But all this access into God's presence for for sinners at Sinai or, or at the tabernacle or in the temple, this was only temporary. And it was a fragile situation because we've just seen now in Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord eventually departed. This wasn't permanent. And we know it's not possible, on top of all that, that the blood of all these sacrificial animals could actually atone for our sin. Animals can't die and somehow make us right, make us just. That's absurd. And that wasn't the point. These things were a pattern to point to something else, to someone else. And this is why we ought to be all the more amazed at the miracle of the incarnation. This is why we ought to be amazed at God's Christmas presence, his presence among us in Christ. The gracious God who delights to manifest himself to us, who is also holy and set apart from sin, has provided a sure way of access into his manifest presence. And the sure way of access is Jesus Christ. The sure way is his bodily presence on this earth in Christ. That's why Jesus came. The way that we can access God permanently, eternally, surely is through his son. The scriptures would teach us there is one way, one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus, because that man is also God come in flesh. God gives us access back into his presence, the access we lost in Eden permanently because Christ himself is very God, a very God. Maybe you're thinking, but how is that possible? Because how could Christ, if he's God, dwell among sinners like us who are unholy? Well, the answer is because Jesus himself is God's atonement for human sin. In fact, there's also the veil principle there because when Jesus comes, he is veiled in human flesh. And it is only in certain instances, like at the Transfiguration, that we catch those glimpses of his true glory. Well, Jesus is an atonement for our sin. Hebrews 10, 14 says, By one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Down in verse 19, the scriptures continue, Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. John 1.14, at the center of all this four-part Advent series, literally says, Jesus came. He tabernacled among us. The tent of meeting is Jesus Christ. You want to meet with God, you must come to God through Christ. And the tabernacle, Jesus Christ our Lord, was also the sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God. The Lamb slain to take away the sin of the world. The Lamb who brings us into the holiest of holies. Now next week we're going to examine God's sure promise. The promise that he gives us centuries before Jesus' coming, a promise to manifest his presence in the most extraordinary way. Let's pray.